Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. I honestly don't know why you're listening to this right now, because registration for the Grace Downtown 10-year anniversary dinner closes Sunday night at midnight. That's July 12th at midnight. Right now, you should be going to gracedc.net slash downtown, clicking on the little box ad on the right side of the screen for the 10-year anniversary, and using the form that's linked there to either buy your tickets or sending us your photos, memories, or videos talking about what your time at Grace Downtown and in Washington, D.C. has meant for you. In fact, pause this right now, and I'll wait for you to come back when you're done. All right, if any of you actually just registered, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to seeing you next Saturday. Now, to continue getting ready for our 10-year anniversary, we're going to go back and listen to Glenn's sermon from Grace Downtown's very first official worship service. I'd like you to keep that passage before you as we'll refer to it throughout. There are many fears and phobias that you can observe in life and observe in people. Uh, some are greater, some are lesser. There are fear of heights, fear of enclosed places, fear of animals, fear of dogs, fear of spiders. I, I remember the exact moment when my daughter became afraid of spiders. My wife and I were sitting on her bed. It was bedtime reading, and we had the animal book out. And I knew this was a crucial moment when we were coming up to the insect section. I knew there was a lot riding on this. So I postured myself, and I got myself ready. And when we flipped the page, I said, Oh, Madeline, and these are some other creatures that God has made. And Meg instinctively went, Yuck! And Madeline followed right after and went, Yuck! And that set the tone. Now in my house, when even a small flea comes around, there's high-pitched screams, there's terror, all because of that moment. Now, uh, there are also... Another fear, or another fear that I observed when I was working on the college campus, and that's what I would call the fear of missing out. Uh, I saw it mostly in freshmen who would load their classes with two or three more classes than they should have. You know, uh, they would join about three or four more activities than they should have because they were afraid they were missing out somehow. And I have to sympathize because I would walk around campus and see these posters and these lectures and go, oh, I want to see that, and yet, you know, I couldn't find time. And I realized it's a good thing that I'll die before I get through all the books that I want to read and all the films that I want to see. Maybe you need to come to that realization. Maybe that'll be the big takeaway for tonight for you. <laughs> but we love to be in the know. We check our email 40 times a day. We love to see what's on the Times bestseller. We love to be in the meeting with the closed door. We love to hear the details of the scandal. We love to have the upper hand in relationships. I was thinking about a particularly insightful Seinfeld episode when Elaine is dating some guy and she mentions to Jerry, well, things are going really well. We're a really hot item. And Jerry goes and sees this guy somewhere and he blurts that out. And she finds out and she's irate and she said, why did you do that? Why did you tell him that I thought we were a hot item? I had the upper hand. Now he has the upper hand. You know, we always want to maintain that. We want to be in the know. Part of this desire and drive is we believe if we're in the know, we can control our circumstance and we'll have the advantage over people and maybe we won't be so vulnerable. 
But some of the being in the know and not wanting to miss out is well-founded. In a sense, knowledge is power. There are consequences we face, some of them very serious when we're not in the know. Sometimes it causes great loss and pain. You think about relationships where things that should have been said aren't said and things that should have been heard aren't heard. I always think about this song uh, called The Living Years that came out some time ago. In the last verse, the writer was autobiographical when he wrote it. He said, I wasn't there that morning when my father passed away. I didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say. I think I caught a spirit later that same year. I know I heard his echo in my baby's newborn tears. I just wish I could have told him in the living years. The sense of loss from not being in the know. Sometimes not being in the know is tragic. You discover someone whom you love for years had been abused. Or we read about someone that had been unjustly imprisoned, wrongly imprisoned. There's one circumstance in life, if you miss it, is unbearable. And that is to discover that the living God came in your midst, your creator, and you missed him. He came to you and you missed him. There's probably uh, no other grief uh, that's harder to bear than that. And this is why John is partly motivated. This is occupying his concern. He writes at the end of his gospel, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, we're a fickle bunch of people. On one hand, we want to be in the know, but on the other hand, we don't want to appear like we're not in the know, and we resent people that say they know. And we see this in our daily lives and our conversations, but also in the religious arena. We live in a day where it's a moral crime to suggest that one religious tradition has a corner of the market being in the know. This is a great offense, and oftentimes the Hindu parable is invoked, you've heard it often, of the blind men in the room with the elephant. It goes like this that there are these blind men in the room with an elephant, and all of them reach out and touch a part of the elephant, but they mistake it for the whole. And the illustration is used to neutralize any claim that one religion has knowledge that another doesn't. But one thing is overlooked all the time with that parable, that it's told from the perspective of someone who sees the entire room, someone who has the one true perspective. Now, we may get angry, and say, uh, you know, I disagree with your claim of knowledge. But to say to someone, who are you, that you would say, you know, well, we're accusing ourselves. We do it all the time. And John, after all, isn't simply saying that he is the source of being in the know. He's saying he's an eyewitness. He's a witness. And as we read this gospel together, his command over details and customs and places will bear that out. But a witness in the same sense of John the Baptist. You see that in verses 6 and 15. Now, the Bible makes a big deal out of witness. No one is simply allowed to assert themselves as being sent from God, a self-proclaimed Messiah, if you will. And Jesus thought it was very important that the Old Testament witnessed about him, that the Father testified about him, that his deeds witnessed about him, that the apostles and the crowds. And it was a very serious thing in the Old Testament to give false witness. In fact, if you were an Old Testament prophet and you gave false witness, you were killed. That's what happened to you. So with that sort of integrity in mind, John is saying, I come to you as a witness. He knows there's a lot of chips on the table. He's not being flippant. Now, you may raise the question, well, how would I know of the integrity of this witness? And I would say, well, it's it's often like uh, the relationships you have. What typically happens? You spend time with someone. And over time, you become convinced of their integrity. 
and it leads to a place of trust. I felt a similar thing happened to me. Having been raised in a non-Christian home, an agnostic home, when someone asked me, hey, do you want to get together and study the Bible? I thought it was weird. I thought it was very strange. But I'd known these people for a couple years, and I trusted them and said, okay. And as I spent a year, actually, with the book of John, I became overwhelmed with the integrity of Jesus and the integrity of the record and the witness. And I hope for some of you, that process may take place, or maybe you'll be invited to consider that. So what is John witnessing about? Well, he tells us in verse 1 here, in the beginning was the word. And the word is a loaded word. The Greek term is logos, and it's a widespread philosophical and religious concept back in that day. Everybody had some handle on it. For the Greeks and the Stoics, it represented the mind of God or the rational principle that was behind life and existence. For the Jewish philosopher Philo, who was heavily influenced by Plato, it represented the realm of the ideal as opposed to the copy of the ideal, which was called the real. Kind of hard to uh, get that in your head. John most likely doesn't mean any of that. I think he's playing with those terms. But in verse 1, he gives us a hint. He says, in the beginning. Where have we heard that before? Well, the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you find in verse 3, he actually says, all things were made. So I believe John, when he's talking about the Logos, has in his mind the activity of creation and deliverance that the creator executes on a regular basis. That's what he's got in his mind. And he begins to unfold it. But still, even with that definition, the people in his audience, the Greeks and the Jews, would have been nodding their heads because they could relate some sense. When they heard verses 1 through 3, he, the word, was with God, and all things were created through him, they would have nodded their heads. The Greeks may have said, well, John is personifying the mind behind all reality. Maybe the Jews said, well, in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified. We have some understanding of this. And when they went to verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and talking about light and darkness, they would have been familiar with those categories. Again, they would have probably went, yes, yes, I agree with this. But what follows after that most definitely would have caused them to wrinkle their foreheads and tense their bodies up. Beginning in verse 9, the true light coming into the world. He was in the world, and he came to his own. And when they heard verse 14, the word became flesh, the room would have been dead silent. It would have been like being on an amusement ride that takes you from the heights to the depths in three seconds and leaves your stomach in your throat because they would have realized in that moment what John was saying. He was saying that the infinite, eternal creator and the origin of all of life became a man. And he saw that man. And the man was Jesus Christ. Now, the Greeks felt like flesh was inferior to spirit. And the divine opposed the human. Now, they had this idea that gods disguised themselves at times and came into humanity, but they never became a human. And then when John gets to verse 14 and literally says the word became flesh or literally dwelt, pitched his tent and tabernacled, immediately the Jewish ears would have perked up and thought of the exodus in Israel. When God, when the, the, the Israelites were in the desert and God said, construct a tabernacle. And God would visit that tabernacle with the fullness of his glory, and he would descend upon the tent, so much so that Moses couldn't even go in. It was overwhelmed with glory. And then John actually invokes the word. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And grace and truth was only used of one person in the Bible. That was Yahweh. 
the Lord of the Old Testament. The passage that Matt read for us, when Moses has the audacity to say to God, show me your glory, and God says, I can't show you all my glory, it'll kill you, but here's what I'll do. I'll show you my back, I'll show you the afterglow, and that even lights Moses' face up so the Israelites are petrified of him. And what you find happening right there is God passes before Moses, and what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in love, merciful and gracious, steadfast and faithful, full of grace and truth. And those listeners would have realized that John was saying, what Moses saw, we saw, but we stared him in the face. Full of grace and truth. Now, just like John's audience, we don't have categories for this. Really, you may think you have categories, but think about it. The infinite Lord of heaven and earth, heaven and earth becoming flesh. Now, you know, we have a category for the idea of the enlightened prophet, the holy sage, someone like Buddha, Muhammad, the Dalai Lama. And we typically put Jesus in that category because that's the best we can do. But clearly John is talking about something on a different level. Verse 9, he says that Jesus not only gives the light, he is light. And verse 4, he not only says he gives life, he is life. And yet he's the very one that became flesh. And not just flesh for one particular Western tradition. Or flesh for one particular race. Or flesh for one particular ethnicity. He says that he enlightens all men. Recently, Tony Kushner's award-winning play, Angels in America, debuted on HBO. And uh, Meg and I took two Sundays to watch that. And the play is set during the 1980s. And uh, sort of what Kushner thinks is an apocalyptic time in America. You have the threat of the nuclear war and also the AIDS crisis coming along. And the story involves those that are either in the gay community or related to the gay community and the great loss that they face, the struggle that they face, the crisis of faith that they face. And uh, there's some very powerful scenes, remarkable acting, and uh, some scenes that are very difficult to watch, period. And one way he deals with this struggle of faith is by visitation of angels. And Kushner leaves it ambiguous whether or not they're hallucinations from a fever dream or whether or not these are actual visitations, visions from God. And I was catching an interview on NPR where Kushner was being interviewed, and he mentions how his agnosticism shapes his theology. And uh, he said, my take on the Old Testament, having a Jewish background, is that God spoke a lot to people and then less and less and then sent angels. And in that, he depicts uh, God and his words as having a twisted and difficult relationship with humanity and the angels. And the way it works is that God is threatened by the progress of human beings. So what he does is he begins to withdraw more and more from the angels, more and more, until he does what Kushner says, takes a long trip and never comes back. And one of the saddest scenes to me in that whole production, outside of it, even sadder than the suffering you see as people are withering away, is the climax when the lead character has another vision and he appears before the angels And he exhorts them and says, listen, wake up. God is gone. Get on with your life. And if he ever does come back, you ought to sue the bastard for abandoning us and leaving us here. It's heart-wrenching. And you find John here saying the opposite. He says that God, in the midst of suffering and chaos and darkness, didn't move away. He actually moved closer, and he became flesh. How near do you think God would draw to you 
Do you think he would send you an angel? Do you think his zeal would maybe give you a vision? Do you think perhaps he would even come to earth? Do you think he would go so far to take on flesh? Do you think he would go so far to bear your weakness? Do you think he would maybe even go farther to enter into your weakness? And would he maybe dare to assume your guilt and shame and then move into your soul? Would he dare to come that close to you? Because this is what the gospel teaches. And I have to tell you something, that your own unbelief and the world will seek to rob you of that. And it will banish God to the farthermost part of the universe and leave you lonely and dark in a world that's ridden with sin. It will leave you with a God who is indifferent to your broken heart. It will leave you with a God who mocks your weakness and sin. And it will leave you with a God who can't overcome your darkness. And John testifies, the Word became flesh. The Word actually became flesh. God is trying to silence all the questions. He's trying to silence the question you have. Would God actually come near enough to my brokenness and the things that I'm ashamed of and break my heart? Would he come that near? Would God come near to the things that I don't even tell my friends, my secret shame? Would God come that close? Would God come close to the darkness that envelops me? And he silences all of that and he says, the word became flesh. Have no more doubt. God would dare to come that close. He would do it. I remember having a conversation once with a young woman. And she said, well, the way I understand things work is this. God is here, and I'm here. And I move closer to God sometimes, and sometimes I do better. I move away, move closer, move away. I said, well, what would you do if God ever started moving? Actually moving toward you. Because that's what the gospel teaches. That's what John's teaching here. That God takes the initiative. So I would ask you, do you hope like someone that believes the word became flesh? For the very things where you've basically written it off and said, well, it ain't going to get any better. And do you pray like someone that believes that the word became flesh? Do you pour out your flesh in prayer? Or do you sanitize your prayer out of the name of reverence? And do you love like the word became flesh? Where you actually enter people's chaos and their weakness? Because God has done the same thing for you. You can only be as real to people as God is to you. It's just the way it works. Yet tragically, we still miss him in his coming. These verses uh, in 9 through 11 are just heartbreaking. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his, his own people did not receive him. He was not recognized by the world. And it says literally, he came to his own home, his own lineage, and they would not receive him. And it's very interesting that the rejection is described not in terms of behavior, but in relationship. They would not have him. They would not have him in his midst, in their midst. Why? Because it's hard to be around grace and truth. Verse 14, especially someone who's full of grace and truth. You know, we don't like the presence of grace. And here I'm not using the popular term in the sense of sort of effortless charm and beauty or the idea of composure, you know, someone that has grace under pressure. In fact, when the Bible talks about grace, it's more about losing your composure than maintaining your composure. When I'm talking about grace, I'm talking about getting what you don't deserve, talking about finding unmerited kindness in the face of flagrant unfaithfulness. Now face it, you and I are drawn to and idolize people that appear to live without grace. Those are the people that we want to be like. 
They're competent, they're smart, they're beautiful, they have it together. It's the people that appear to need not any grace, those are the people that we idolize and are drawn to. I remember when I was at seminary, after our first semester and first class, someone approached me and said, listen, I'm planning to get a couple people together, and uh, four or five guys on a weekly basis, and I'd like you to be part of it. And he named one other person. And I was delighted because I had identified those two people as the smartest and the sharpest people in the class. They were very articulate. They had uh, lots of insight when it came to theology, and I, and I was uh, very happy that they included me as a peer. I was in that group. And then uh, one day, I was in a preaching class with one of them. It was my turn to preach, and sermon went pretty well. And afterward, we were in the apartment, and uh, he looked at me with sort of a quizzical look on his face, and he, he smiled and said, wow, you know, Glenn, I have to, have to say I'm surprised that uh, that sort of depth would come from you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I realized in that moment I wasn't in the club. <laughs> you know, the very thing I was attracted to, I wasn't a part of. Uh, you and I, we fight against the notion that we would need grace. Most of our apologies and repentance, so to speak, spin off into self-justification, right? And you just think about how many times in conversation you're trying to control people's impressions of you. We do it all the time. You know, we bemoan the spin doctors we see in the public arena. We're, we, we could all apply for those positions. We're great spin doctors. You know, think about every conversation you have. It'll amaze you how often you desire to basically... Uh, adjust people's impressions of you in conversation. And if you're a Christian and you've been in the church for a while, you know how easy it is for holiness basically to become pretending like you're above sin. That's what godliness is. I remember a student that I worked with, his life with God literally took off when someone said to him, you don't like Jesus. Because he never felt free to admit that. He was from a very church background before, and he said, you know, come to think of it, there are times I don't like the grace of God, and I don't like what Jesus says to me. And all of a sudden, his love for Jesus overflowed because he began to live by grace. He stopped hating grace. He was not afraid of grace. Some of us are deathly afraid of grace. It scares us to death. And when someone shows us grace, it causes tremors through us. We don't know what to do. When Jesus is around, that sort of pretension is exposed. Jesus being he who is full of grace and truth can't help but remind people all the time that they're desperate. And when someone reminds you that you're desperate, you're going to have one or two responses. You're going to either fall on your knees and go, I am hungry and thirsty, feed me. Or you're going to go, get away from me. And some of Jesus' harshest words were for those religious people that refused to believe that they were desperate. And this is also a function of him being full of truth. It's hard to be around someone who's full of truth. Once uh, a friend said to me after I'd married Meg, he said, well, Glenn, I know you were attracted to Meg for lots of healthy reasons, but what do you think, uh, why do you think you were sinfully attracted to her? I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, we all are attracted to people because they accommodate our sinful patterns. They let us keep, you know, our sinful goodie bag. And face it, you choose friends like that. You choose friends that won't get in your face. You choose friends that'll, you know, sort of egg you on where you're venting on someone. You'll choose friends that accommodate you. And oftentimes, marriages for 20 or 30 years become this art of just accommodating one another's sin. This great dance that we do, that's what marriage becomes. When you're opposed to grace and truth, you have to be opposed to the one full of grace and truth. 
And what we typically do is when we approach God, if that's your position, you either uh, you come up with a one-sided God. He's either full of truth or full of grace. And I agree with Tim Keller when he says it. Religious conservatives typically want to press that God is true and God is holy. Religious liberals want to press that God is gracious, so we should all be accepting. But Jesus is holier than any conservative can bear, and he's more gracious and loving than any liberal can imagine. I believe that that's true. I think that's right. And when you deal with the person of Jesus and God, you need to hold them both together, or you won't get the true God, and you won't go near him. But for those who received him, for those who received him and believed in his name, which means rested in his character, John says this experience happens where you receive grace upon grace. It's like waves of grace. When you begin to come to terms with the one full of grace and truth, you find this uh, strange experience where standing before God, you find yourself completely undone, but at the same time made up and robed in his glory. It's almost like a vision that you find in the book of Zechariah where Joshua the high priest is standing before God and he's filthy and rags because he's representing Israel and their sin before God. And it says that uh, Satan is standing next to him accusing his conscience. And God arouses himself and he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who chose Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Plucked from the fire. And then the angel calls out and says, take off these dirty clothes. You bring the pure vestments. Have you ever had that experience before God? Because that's what it's like when you come to terms with he who is full of grace and truth. And you also find this curious thing that God can say things to you that anybody else would say to you, but you still feel like he's for you and not against you. We use the truth to punish people. We use the truth to say, no, there's no redemption for you. We find God actually giving us the truth, and at the same time we feel like, I feel like he's for me. I feel like he's an optimist about me. And when you deal with the one full of grace and truth, you find yourself singing the song in verse 16, that from his fullness we all received grace and grace. Lastly, you begin to live a life for the first time of grace and truth you find that your interactions with people actually begin to touch on what it is to be free to live with grace and truth at the same time. All of this because the word became flesh. Because God did not get lost in space. Let's pray together. We thank you for your commitment and your zeal, God. We thank you that you pursue people Thank you that the word became flesh. It's beyond us, God. We don't have categories for this. We ask for your grace. We ask for your grace to comprehend it. We thank you for uh, your patience. We thank you that here we are thousands of years later, and you still raise the word up of grace. We give you all the credit, and we give you all the praise. In Christ's name, amen.